Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. We wanted to draw your attention to our crowdfunding page on Patreon. If you've been enjoying Always Take Notes, please do consider supporting us there. It helps us to keep the podcast going. If you support us on Patreon, you can get a great selection of rewards, including a shout out on the show and a selection of successful magazine pitches. If you pledge $10 a month, you also get a free two-month trial to Otter, worth $26, alongside the other rewards. Otter offers automated transcription and live note-taking for in-person and virtual meetings. I found it to be a huge help when organising interview material. Thanks again for supporting Always Take Notes. Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Rachel and myself spoke with the academic and author, Robert Douglas Fairhurst. We spoke to Robert about combining an academic career and writing for a wider audience, his biographies of Charles Dickens and Lewis Carroll, and his upcoming book, Metamorphosis. It's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy it. Welcome, Robert, to Always Take Notes. In the interest of full transparency, I should tell listeners that Robert was my tutor many years ago now. Uh, so it's great to have the opportunity to grill you for an hour. If we could start... I, t- I taught you nothing, Rachel. That's the key thing to remember. <laughs> Um, could we start with your uh, early life? Uh, is it right that your, one of your childhood homes was on a road called Dickens Drive? It is absolutely right. So the fact that I'm interested in Dickens is partly chance and partly town planning. Um, and the town planning bit is Dickens Drive. Uh, Pickwick Close was around the corner. Copperfield Way uh, was also around the corner. So in some ways it was, you know, it was fate. It was destiny that I would end up writing about Dickens. Just out of interest, had those uh, roads been named at what period? I mean, were they were they 19th century or when had those? No, this was, um, so I lived there in the 1970s. Uh, yeah, 1970s. Uh, and it was a, a series of streets of new build, uh, but fake Georgian new build. So, um, and it's, this was in, uh, in Kent. And it's absolutely true in some ways to Dickens, that idea of something which is both brand new and strangely old fashioned. It's got that kind of veneer, uh, of novelty, but at the same time, it's got that sort of kind of musty, kind of fusty quality to it. So yeah, it was it was actually well named. And was it a particularly bookish childhood? Uh, not really. No, it was more of a um, more of a kind of cartoons and comic books kind of childhood. So the things I remember reading when I was a kid were, I mean, yes, there were uh, there were books, there were library books, but um, I was mostly a fan of DC and. Marvel comics you know I, I remember sort of being fascinated by all the ads for uh, kind of bodybuilding and x-ray specs and all these other kind of bits of arcane Americana that to me seemed as you know bizarre as kind of Martians um, it was only much later I realized that they were just as bizarre to Americans as they were to me is it right that you got a school prize when you were a teenager and you bought a set of Dickens that was largely but not entirely complete no, that is true. Yes. Um, so again, another reason why perhaps I became interested in Dickens is I, I I won a prize and had the chance to spend £50 in a bookshop. I went to a bookshop that had lots of secondhand books um, and Pride of Place was a metre of um, shiny uh, Dickens in fake leather binding, um, which was £50. And I thought, well, that's a nice way of taking up a metre of shelf space. So so I bought it and then ignored it for about the next six months. Um, and then I was encouraged to read something at college. And so I started reading some Dickens. And then one book led to another, which led to another, which led to another. And it was like um, sort of literary dominoes uh, in the end. And from there, did you 
discover other Victorian writers or was it mostly Dickens that you were reading at that period? No, um, I, I mean, one of the things that Dickens is fascinated by is um, unexpected connections. So the, the, the key line in, um, in Bleak House is what connection can there be? And then he lists a whole set of different um, social types and individuals uh, who may or may not be connected. And then the novel then proves that, in fact, they're all connected. We're all connected. We're all part of the same story, as it were. And I suppose as I was um, starting to read more widely in uh, in the 19th century, I started to realise that was also true of that period. Everyone and everything is connected. And some of the most important things that come out of the period, like, for instance, Darwin's theory of evolution, are precisely about the kind of intimate and inevitable and unavoidable interconnectedness of things. But it's also then true of um, of writers and writings as well. It's a kind of great um, kind of tangled web or kind of clump of ideas and materials, all of which um, touch on uh, or embrace or try to keep a kind of safe distance away from each other. And what was your experience of, of doing an undergraduate English degree like? Was it kind of clear from the get-go that you were interested in an academic career or was that something that, that developed as you were studying? No, it's, 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 it's pure, um, I wouldn't say it's chance, but um, it, it certainly wasn't a plan. I mean, I, I look at young academics now and they have this kind of gleam in their eyes of competition and ambition. And I had none of that at all. I had no idea what I was going to do. Um, when I went up to university, I was going to be an actor. And then I met real actors like Tom Hollander and Rachel Weisz. And I thought, well, I'm clearly not going to be an actor <laughs> because, you know, these are, you know, remarkable people who have that mixture of all great actors of um, seeming to be absolutely naturally themselves but also a kind of transformative able to become anyone else and I didn't have that I, I was just a slightly more kind of um, arch and self-conscious version of myself on stage so um, then I thought well, I don't know maybe teaching and I spent a year teaching um, and then again completely by chance I saw an advert for a scholarship in America uh, which I applied for and I got and I spent a year in Princeton and then on the basis of that I then applied to do a PhD uh, and then after that yeah to one thing led to another but there it, it was never any sense in which it was part of a, a grand scheme or project. How did you find the experience of studying at Cambridge and, and who were some of your tutors at that time? Well it, it's, it's difficult to talk about without sounding ungrateful um, but in some ways I'm very grateful for the fact that I wasn't really taught um, I was just left to my own devices. Um, it was still a very old-fashioned system in which we would be asked what we wanted to write about and then we would go away and research it and write it ourselves. We weren't given any bibliographies, any guidance, any anything really. And then uh, we would then turn up and we would read our essay out and our tutor would say, very nice, well done. What, what about next week then? Um, so it was, it was like being thrown into the deep end or thrown into a you know, swimming pool full of sharks and then trying to work out how to negotiate that for the next three years. Um, and one thing I discovered is that in, in, in that way, you do develop quite a strong critical voice of your own because you're not really kind of fighting against other people. You are simply trying to work out who you are and what you sound like on the page. Um, and I had the luxury of being able to do that without any fear about kind of competing with other students or with um, any kind of critical idea or with um, uh, even with my tutors. Although, having said that, um, when I then went back to do a, um, 
a PhD, um, I was supervised by the very brilliant and um, very dangerous Eric Griffiths uh, uh, in Cambridge. Uh, uh, to me, a wonderful man. To others, not so much. Um, but one of the things I only realised after I'd finished my PhD, which turned out to be about Harold Bloom and influence and the needs to reject powerful influences, was that, of course, I was really writing about Eric Griffiths. But it was only after I'd written the whole thing that I realised that, in fact, the whole thing was, as most PhDs are, a form of disguised autobiography. And then how did the US kind of compare to that somewhat formless uh, British undergraduate experience? I know, in my experience, I, I went to the States on a... Uh, I mean, to go to journalism school, but after doing undergraduate English at Oxford, and I found it was only that experience that put some of the eccentricities of Oxford into perspective. I mean, how did those two experiences compare and, and play a part in your development? It's interesting because in some ways um, I, I didn't really have either a true undergraduate or graduate experience. I was there as a what they call a visiting fellow, but as we would think of it more as a visiting graduate student. Um, but I wasn't really involved or enrolled in particular courses. I could sort of do more or less what I wanted. So, you know, I could read Proust, I could go to New York, I could, um, I could enrol myself in uh, courses as a kind of someone who audited them. Um, but if I dropped out, nobody would really worry. So it was it was in every sense a free year, a year of freedom uh, in which I could um, do bits and bobs of writing. I started writing for TLS uh, that year, um, partly because I bumped into Jeremy Triglone, who was the former editor, uh, and he ran a course on uh, journalism and I took it and uh, he liked the stuff I wrote. He encouraged me to write for TLS. And, and because of that, I then started uh, doing quite a lot of regular reviewing work for them. So, so again, it was it was a matter of happy chance rather than any kind of programme or scheme that, that Princeton was uh, set up for. Was um, Princeton supported by a grant? Because I think these days it is, but I'm, I'm not sure if it was then. Princeton? As in the, 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 the year-long sort of fellowship that you did? Oh, yeah, yes, yes, it was. Yeah, it, it was, it was, and it was competitive. Uh, and I was, I was interviewed by um, uh, Roger Bannister, among other people, when I was... Uh, interview for the thing why they gave it to me I don't know and that, that's not being self-deprecating I, I, I really don't know because I, I didn't have a like a, a solid scheme of what I wanted to do I simply I think I made something up about needing to look at their archives because I had some Keats or, or something I mean it was nonsense and obviously they saw through it but but maybe they saw something else as well and they, they gave me the chance and I was I was hugely grateful for that and when you returned to Cambridge as a junior research fellow, were you, did you have a clearer sense of direction by that point or were you still taking things one step at a time? Oh, still very much one step at a time. I mean, and even when I moved away from Cambridge to Oxford, it really was, um, again, I won't say chance, but um, my career in, Ox in, in Cambridge had sort of stalled a bit because I, there weren't any permanent faculty positions I could apply for. There hadn't been for about 20 years. Um, and then this job came up at Magdalen, and um, and I applied for it, and and, and I got it. Um, but again, it wasn't, it wasn't as if I had somebody kind of sitting on my shoulder, kind of advising me, kind of nudging me in the right direction. And am I right? Uh, the year that you arrived at Magdalen, you also published your first book, Victorian Afterlives, in two thousand and two. That is right, and, and and in fact, that book then turned out to be a passport. It, I, it, it was it was the fact that book was published meant that I could flourish it and say, look, see, see, I I, I can write things and have them published. Um, so it, it was just very, very good timing that that job happened to come up a month or two after uh, my book had been published. 
So we always love on the podcast to get into the mechanics of particularly people's first books, how they came about in terms of agents, editors, publishers. And could you tell us how that worked for yourself in that case, but also explain a little bit about some of the distinctions between academic publishing and, and trade publishing, which is a kind of line that you've, you've straddled a little bit. Is that right? right? Yeah. So so my first book, so Victorian Afterlives was very explicitly an academic book. It was published by Oxford University Press. Uh, it came about because um, I happened to meet uh, the commissioning editor for literature. Uh, we got on, she asked what I was writing. I said that I had a thesis. I was thinking about turning it into a book. She asked to see it and then she sent it out to some readers um, uh, and they were they were positive about it. So on the basis of that, they gave me a contract uh, for a book based on the thesis. But they also gave me sort of free reign to do, again, more or less what I wanted with it. So what had been an 80,000 word thesis became this kind of door-stopping 140,000 word book. Um, and it was chaotic and pretty dreadful now when I look back at it. I think, what was, what was I thinking? What was I doing? I was, I was expanding and elaborating and sort of adding kind of um, curlicues and um, kind of uh, extra kind of fancy kind of capital letters all over the place. But, but it wasn't really adding much to the, the argument of the thesis. So I look back, not exactly with shame or, or embarrassment, but a certain sort of chagrin at what I could have done, what I in fact didn't end up doing. How did you approach that, that process of revising your thesis? Was it going back and doing more research than kind of working it in or something more extensive than that? No, it, it, it indeed was that. And um, and again, looking at the things I've done more recently, when I think I've got it better in terms of the balance between what Geoffrey Hill calls um, local vividness and overall shape, you know, the, the individual bits and how the bits then form part of a larger jigsaw puzzle structure. I think I've got that balance a bit better now. I'm much more conscious of structure and shape than I was. Um, Victorian Afterlives, that book really was um, a, a kind of explosion or kind of mess of, of ideas in which every time I came across something that was I thought was new and exciting and sexy and fun, I would sort of find a way of manoeuvring it into, kind of crowbarring it into the book, which meant the book just became uh, extraordinarily top-heavy uh, with examples and ideas without any kind of really clear well, thesis, kind of line of argument to, to link it all together. It, it was like a kind of very, very fat man with a very, very small skeleton uh, kind of trying to hold all the bits together. What kind of reception did it get when it came out? Mostly positive. Um, it, I mean, I, I was lucky enough to get a big uh, review in the TLS. Um, that Angela Layton reviewed it and said that it was, you know, uh, marvellous and maddening. And um, I mean, she, she gave, gave a long list of adjectives. Um, some of which were good, some of which were less good, but it was actually a very balanced and fair review because I think some of the book was quite good and some of it was really not good at all. In the subsequent years, you edited quite a few books, um, an edition of Christmas Carol, Great Expectations, London Labour and The London Poor. Could you explain to listeners what an editor of a new edition actually does and how that process works? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, th there are kind of mechanical things you have to do and then there are interpretive things. The mechanical things are you have to work out what it, exactly you are going to be editing. So that means you have to choose the text, what um, in, in theory is called a copy text, which is the thing you actually end up printing. You might choose the first version of something, the last version of something, or there might be a middle bit, uh, which is, for instance, out of copyright and therefore free. Uh, and therefore you might choose that. And once you've done that, then you need to kind of go through it and make sure it hasn't got any mistakes in it. 
um, because printers often introduce errors. And then after that, I mean, in my case, um, I would go through and for Oxford World's Classics, I would add um, footnotes to anything that might seem kind of confusing or that um, has kind of uh, lost its historical punch over the years. And then after that, um, I would probably read everything I could about the work and write um, an introduction that I hope would be sort of, you know, chatty and readable. Um, and then there are other things you have to do involving sort of author um, sort of synopses of their life and um, a kind of bibliography uh, and so on. So it's, again, it's kind of jigsaw puzzle, but the difference with this kind of work is that the individual bits of a puzzle are quite distinct. So you can sort of work on a bit and then another bit, and then at the end you slot it all together. Whereas my first book, it was a jigsaw puzzle, but I was trying to pretend that it was a seamless picture. It wasn't, it was just a, yes, a kind of a chaos of materials. Could we talk now about Becoming Dickens from 2011 and where the, the idea for the project came from? And then this, this description you had of it as a zero to hero tale. Can you unpack that a bit? So that book came out of a lunch I had with uh, John Corker, who at the time was commissioning the editor for Harvard University Press. We met in Oxford um, and he asked what I was working on and I said, well, not much. Um, we talked about the fact that there was Dickens's bicentenary coming up. Um, we thrashed through some possible ways of writing about it that hadn't been done before. Um, and I said, why don't I do something about young Dickens? You know, Dickens, when he looked like a boy band star before he became, you know, the grizzled, kind of bearded, um, you know, man on a £10 note. Um, and he liked that idea. Um, so I started writing it. And as I was writing it it became clear that the early years were a lot more contingent and uncertain and um, kind of chancy than we often think. We like to think that life is um, a series of stepping stones that lead in a particular direction. Or we like to think that um, when we read a biography, it's like a series of arrows winging their way towards a target. And it was inevitable all along. But what became clear was that in Dickens' case, it was um, a, a lot more uncertain than that. He tried so many different careers. Um, uh, there were moments where it could have gone horribly wrong. There were moments when he could have fallen into penury as a child uh, or even actually as a young adult. Um, and what I wanted to do was to sort of show how that experience that he had might also be a way of generating, a way of telling his story in which rather than offering up yourself as an omniscient narrator of somebody's life, what you do is you get down um, ground level with them and you follow their footsteps and see where they take certain turnings and where they turn in a different direction and how that process then creates um, a sense of life as it is lived rather than life as it is understood retrospectively. You've said that you have sort of eschewed the idea of being an omniscient narrator. Lots of biographers obviously do cast ahead and hint at the career to come and with that degree of certainty. Uh, what is it that made you choose that approach of being on the ground level, as you say? Well, I mean, I suppose I mean, I cheat, of course, because um, in, in some ways, a bit like the narrator of, well, a bit like Bleak House, which is the novel I talk about quite a lot in my most recent book um, there are two narrators in Blake House there is the ground level perspective of Esther Summerson and then there is this quasi omniscient uh, uh, narrator who seems to know most of what's going on but it turns out not everything that's going on um, and I suppose I try and do something similar I try and sort of switch kind of lenses 
So you do get both the kind of telescopic and the microscopic view. You do get the sense of, um, yeah, the clutter and confusion of ground level experience. And you get the sense of a kind of controlling consciousness who is actually aware of what's going on and where it fits into a larger uh, pattern um, and, and direction. Why do I do that? Um, I, I suppose because I'm, I get quite bored by biography where it's clear that it's all been laid out in advance. Um, and I'm much more interested in life writing, which is more lifelike, I suppose. And it strikes me that a lot of biography isn't. Um, and, and that sense of, um, yeah, of uncertainty and loose ends and um, not knowing that life has a beginning and a middle and an end as you're experiencing it seems to be to be more true to um, the way that we look at ourselves and, and indeed other people. That seems very, both very sensible and very laudable approach, but it, it also seems quite a long way from a lot of traditional academic writing. And I'm wondering if as your career had progressed, you, you, you wanted to write in a more free form or a more kind of creative and inventive way and, and what the reception of that was within the academy at taking that approach. Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I've actually, I've entirely moved away from academic writing, but I haven't done any for a little while. Um, and it's, it's not only because it's fun to write for people who might actually want to read your writing rather than feel duty bound to do it, although that is part of it. Um, it's also because I think there is a problem in academia, certainly as far as English literature is concerned at the moment, in that there is a feeling that perhaps many of the best tunes have already been sung, many of the best stories have already been told, and therefore quite a lot of is left. what is left is um, kind of quibbling or inventing uh, kind of arguments that don't need to be argued through. Um, or footnoting stuff that has already been done to death. And it seems to me that there are ways of telling stories about the past and about literature which can be more exciting and more original if you're not having to doff your cap to uh, your peers or other academic authorities. If you, if you have that freedom to play, really, on the page... Um, rather than having to go through and make it kind of academic work, is it well, what, what if you can be more playful, uh, more kind of permissive than that? Uh, and I think that actually generates more insight as well. Are there any of your contemporaries who you think are, are doing that particularly well? Um, yeah, I mean, it's interesting that where I teach, which is Oxford's, um, there's been quite a, a rise in life writing. Um, so Hermione Lee, who retired recently, um, astonishingly brilliant uh, biographer, um, not only with her work on Virginia Woolf, but many other later writers, especially female writers. She, I think, showed the rest of us that it was possible to be both rigorous and playful, that it was possible to not patronise your readers, uh, to take them seriously and treat them with respect, but at the same time, um, not kind of club them over the head with kind of unnecessary jargon or kind of boring facts for the sake of it. Um, and I've got colleagues now, um, you know, Sophie Ratcliffe writes kind of astonishingly kind of fertile uh, uh, writing, which mixes together different genres. Matt Bevis um, similarly uh, does the same sort of thing. So, so I think there are a lot of us who are perhaps trying to break out of that straight jacket, or that Iron Maiden 
of um, uh, academic writing where we can perhaps be ourselves rather than living up to some kind of slightly kind of fusty ideal as to what academic writing should be. We had Hermione Lee on the podcast a few years ago and she was really excellent, so I definitely can concur with your view there. I wondered, in a, in a spirit of playfulness here actually as well, if I could make the case against Dickens, returning to that, and if you could, if you could go into bat for him. So I um, remember having to read Dombey and Son before I got to Oxford and you know, it, I, I read the whole thing, but I found it hard work. And I, you know, I, I, I could never click with Dickens, you know, and I felt ultimately that the novels were too long, that they were a function of, of a, a kind of literary culture where you're writing in installments, that they were, they were baggy, that they lacked a kind of, a kind of tightness. Now, I, you know, I, I ought to read more of them, but that was always, I, I could just never engage with Dickens the way I could with George Eliot, for example, or, or even with Anthony Trollope or, or someone like that. Um, and I'd love to hear your your kind of defence, if defence is the, the word for that. Well, I mean, I mean Henry James used to call, he called um, Victorian novels loose baggy monsters, didn't he? Um, and Dickens perhaps is the most monstrous of them all, partly because of the kind of length of most of the novels, although some are as tight as a drum, like Great Expectations. Uh, partly because of the caricatures and the grotesques which are in the novels, which makes them monstrous in a rather different way. But also because of the fact that Dickens himself, to be frank, was a bit of a monster. Um, and I don't just mean the way he treated um, his wife. Um, I mean that um, if a monster is understood to be um, someone or something who offers a kind of distorted or caricatured version of real life, that is what Dickens did in his own life, and it's what he did in his writing as well. The reason I would perhaps go into bat for him is to say that um, whereas some other writers are very good at describing the world as it is, Dickens is very good at describing both that and the world as it might be, or could have been, and overlaying those things on each other, so that you're reading um, both uh, a realist novel um, and a work of fairy tale or fantasy simultaneously. So it's both the actual and the possible kind of rubbing against each other and creating sparks. Um, and that's what I find extraordinary about him. It's the fact that um, although um, everything he describes you can see with your mind's eye, he also um, doesn't take anything for granted. Uh, and by doing that, what he does is he turns the world from a kind of huge fat full stop into something more like a question mark. And that is something I find uh, pretty extraordinary. In terms of Dickens as a subject, you've described him as peculiarly <laughs> slippery and an escape artist. Why is he so challenging to write about? And as a biographer, how did you grapple or deal with that? Yeah, I mean, I mean Lee Hunt said that um, when you see Dickens, his face is so mobile. He said it has the life and soul of 50 human beings in it. Um, and that's partly because he did so much. I mean, he did indeed live fast and die fairly young. Uh, so he was at different times, you know, a social campaigner and he was a journalist and he was an editor and he was a novelist and a short story writer. He even wrote some bad poems. Um, and he gave speeches and he gave uh, uh, lecture tours and um, uh, amateur acting. You know, I could go on. I mean, he, he's like a sort of, um, I don't know, a sort of football team of Victorians all kind of squashed into one little body um why is he challenging well partly because of the fact that yes he is like an escape artist that just when you think you've managed to 
kind of pin him down, he sort of slips away. Not just because of the fact that he did so much, but because his own writing does so much. Because when you think you've managed to grasp what he's up to, you know, he's being sentimental, he's being grotesque, or he's being, um, uh, you know, tragic, or he's being kind of ridiculous, or th then it changes. You know, he changes the lens, or, or, or the tone sort of switches or slips into into something else. Um, so it, it's like it's like watching a high wire act or someone who um, likes spinning plates, um, and. He never quite manages to spin them all. Sometimes some do kind of crash to the floor, which is why his novels are so kind of patchy and so uneven. And yet the overall effect, I think, is still, you know, spellbinding. Hello, it's Artemis, the producer of Always Take Notes. I hope you're enjoying Simon and Rachel's conversation with the academic and author Robert Douglas Fairhurst. It's time for the next instalment of our Midway segment where we share bonus material from previous guests of the show. So this week we're going to hear from the journalist and author Sean Meads Williams on a piece of advice she wished she'd had at the start of her career. One piece of advice that I wish I'd had at the beginning of my career was to really take care of my finances. Um, I really believe that as a freelancer, approaching work as a business is not just the key to being a successful writer, but it's very much also the key to your own mental health. I think when you're working for yourself, it's so easy to get caught up in how much you're working, how much you're earning, like time very much becomes money when you're freelance. But if we keep working all the time and keep trying to earn, we stop taking holidays, we stop relaxing, we stop having fun. And it's very hard for us to work our best when we do that. So taking care of the finances also means that you know when you can afford to take a break, which is really important. That was Sean Meads Williams. And if you were interested in what she had to say, you can listen to our full interview with her via our website, which is www.alwaystakenotes.com. Now back to Simon and Rachel's conversation with Robert Douglas Fairhurst. So Becoming Dickens won the Duff Cooper Prize in, in 2012. And a, a real theme we've had on the podcast is the impact of prizes on, on people's careers. And often they've been these real signal moments when, when things have changed for them. Did that, did that have a major impact for you? I suppose the only thing that it did was... Um maybe open some later doors to more obviously commercial publishers. Um, so the fact that my um, next book after the Dickens one uh, uh, about um, Lewis Carroll uh, was published uh, by Harville Secker, which is part of Penguin Random House um, in, uh, in the UK. Uh, I think that was perhaps partly because of the success of the Dickens book, or at least the fact that it had been recognised uh, with a prize, because it made me look more like a kind of commercially kind of available uh, or kind of possible uh, writer rather than one who had struck lucky with an academic press I suppose. And I think you've also mentioned that you loved Lewis Carroll as a child was that part of the reason you wanted to turn to him next or was there another I think there was another anniversary right? There was although that that was actually something I only kind of worked out when I was quite deeply into the book so that, that again was sort of serendipitous rather than kind of cunning. Um, yeah I mean, Carol is, again, another one of these writers who we think we know much better than we really do. 
Um, because we all tend to read or at least watch the Disney version of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland when we're kids, we sort of think that we know. And, and then when we're older, we sort of think, oh, it's all about drugs. Uh, you know, one pill makes you smaller uh, and so on. Um, and then we sort of abandon it. But if you go back to it, you realise just how deeply weird the books are and how interestingly and deeply weird Carol himself was as as a man. And again, just how kind of diverse his writing was and his interests were across across his whole career. Plus, of course, the elephant in the room, which, you know, one has to grapple with, which is, did he or didn't he, was he or wasn't he? Um, and that, as one of these kind of inkblot tests, I found really challenging as a biographer because we don't have enough evidence to know, but you still have to be able to um, talk about it in a way which is kind of reasoned and sensible and isn't just kind of avoiding the issue. So again, I thought, in some ways, like a little miniature biography as a whole, in which you have a set of facts and you have a set of suppositions and you have a set of imaginations and you have to sort of somehow create a kind of coherent story out of all of those different kinds of materials. And in Carol, all those things kind of coalesce on what has become, you know, perhaps quite rightly, the most taboo of subjects, uh, which is child sexual abuse. Um, what you do with that as a biographer, I thought was a, a, a fascinating challenge, as well as, of course, being, you know, uh, appalling when it comes to the facts themselves. And how did you go about wrestling with that? I mean, there's a line in, in the Carol book saying that he'd become a, a lightning conductor for all our fears about childhood and sexuality. And as you say, there's definitely this kind of revisionist idea of him as just a, a fundamentally pretty creepy, pretty creepy guy. How did you how did you go about kind of walking through that forest well it's a it's a crowded and dark forest I'll, I'll, I'll tell you that partly because of the fact that the evidence is so shifty when you look at it uh, partly because of the fact that our historical understanding has indeed shifted quite a lot even the fact that the age of um, consent changes to 16 in 1885 uh, and before that, it's, you know, 12, when Carol himself is growing up. You know, historical facts like that that make it very difficult to pin down exactly what his attitudes may or may not have been. Um, and also perhaps trying to find a tone for it, which is fair-minded, but not censorious, but not glib, in trying to describe what's going on, and trying to be true to the the sheer ambiguity of some of the materials. For instance, the fact that he takes a photograph of a little girl called Evelyn Hatch, um, in which he poses her naked, and then he gets a female artist friend of his to paint an elaborate scene on the negative, which makes her look as if she's posing in Eden, as if Evelyn is actually little Eve, who's been restored to a kind of innocence, or is it that she indeed is innocent and it's our adult kind of um, vanity and corruption that wants to think of it as anything other than innocent? But then, of course, only someone who isn't innocent would recognise what it is to have somebody possibly not innocent. Do you see what I mean? It's, it, it, it's a real kind of box of mirrors. Um, and we know that because some of his photographs of naked children were kept in a box in which he wrote, Oni Swaki Mali Pons, evil be him who thinks evil of it, um, which, of course, was his declaration of innocence, but only someone who is aware that they might not be considered to be innocent 
would write that on their box. So again, it's extremely murky as to what one does with all that material. And, and in the end, all I could do, I think, was to, to lay it out as a set of clues um, to say what I thought about it, but also to allow readers to piece the clues together um, for themselves. Could we talk about your research process, perhaps using this book as an example? You've described it as a mixture of deliberate research and happy chance. Where do you start when you're, once you've had the idea for a book, where do you go to? Is it an archive first? Is it books, articles, you name it? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose if, if you are, if you're writing biography or in fact for any work which involves research, you, you're a collector. Uh, you collect stray facts and interesting anecdotes and telling jokes and so on. And then you treat them like the pieces in a jigsaw puzzle because you have to work out how they fit together. And there might be some pieces you abandon that don't fit. Uh, you might need to add some new pieces that do fit once you see what picture seems to be emerging. Um, and then you have to fill in the details of that picture to make it more lifelike. Little narrative details here and there, little character sketches. Uh, and then you have to make it move so that it captures what life is like rather than a kind of snapshot of it on the page. Um, and in some ways, I suppose, it's, it's, it's not that different, perhaps, to writing a novel. Although when you're writing a biography, you have to keep one eye on history, or at least the bits of it that survive, uh, and one eye on the story which you're telling. And you have to try and make those two um, things work alongside each other or, or, or keep them in dialogue uh, with each other. And that's and that's tricky. <laughs> How is your time divided now between these different aspects of your life, between teaching and, and university commitments and between writing books and, and then writing journalism? How does that division work? Um, so it, it, it's pretty much half and half. Um, uh, so the university terms take up about half of the year. And during that time, I don't do anything much apart from teaching and admin and mopping tears and... Um, you know the, the kind of everyday life of of an academic um and then uh, the holidays are when i sit and do do my own writing and and i might slip in a book review during term time but nothing more than that or i might correct some proofs but but the actual business of sitting down and researching something and writing it you you need you know a few days at least to kind of build up a bit of a head of steam to use one of dickens's favorite metaphors um and, and you can't really do that when you're grabbing half an hour here and 20 minutes there. And it's a rule of the podcast that we always ask our guests about money. So be as candid or as guarded as you like. But how important is the book writing as a source of income alongside your academic income? Well, I, I'm lucky enough that it's not needed, but it's nice. Uh, it, it allows me to sort of buy a couple of nice, luxurious things that I wouldn't be able to afford otherwise, but I wouldn't starve without it. So... Um, there, there is a problem, as as any writer knows, that advances in real terms have shrunk over the last uh, 20 years or so. Um, and anyone who can make a living out of their writing is doing exceptionally well or is exceptionally brilliant or both. Um, I couldn't make a living out of my writing. There's, there, there's not a chance I could. So so for me, it's, um, uh, it's something I do because I enjoy it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's it's not for the money. And that's not me being kind of, grand about it you know I, I wish I earned more from it but 
that, that, that is the state of the market. Could you tell us about Metamorphosis, your forthcoming book? And is it right that you've described it as a, a misery memoir with jokes? <laughs> it's, I don't know who told you that, but yeah, yes, it, it, it is. Um, so it is a, I suppose in some ways it's inspired by Helen MacDonald's book H is for Hawk, uh, which, as you know, interweaves um, her own story about grieving for her dead father with um, the story of T.H. Uh, White and um, the meeting point for them is uh, what it is to try and train a hawk, a goshawk. My version of that is I'm trying to tell the story of an extraordinary writer who, even though he's still published by Penguin Classics, has sort of sunk from view. Uh, he published under the uh, nickname WPN Barbellion. Um, his name is Bruce Cummings. He was a naturalist. Uh, he also died from MS when he was... Um, uh, in his 20s. Um, he wrote the most beautiful diary called The uh, Journal of a Disappointed Man. Um, and what I'm trying to do is to weave his story into and out of my own story as someone else who, who um, has MS, but hopefully with a different kind of ending. So his uh, life um, is a kind of slow, elegant, beautifully expressed decline. Uh, mine, I hope, is going to be rather different because of modern medicine. So it's a way of sort of comparing and contrasting to kind of life trajectories as well as to life stories. What is the Kafka influence beyond the title? I noticed that the title page has a picture of a beetle on it as well. Yeah, I mean, I mean who knows what will happen when it's, it gets into the hands of a designer. That, that, that's just me um, sort of playing around. So um, it, it's for two reasons, really. Um, one is that when I was diagnosed with MS, um, that story by Kafka, Metamorphosis, was a thing that just popped into my head because it's a story, as um, I'm sure most people listening to this will know, is, is about um, someone who wakes up and is being transformed physically and yet inside still feels exactly the same. But physically, he's become this kind of lumbering, cumbersome uh, kind of insect, which is also pretty much what happened to me, although over a slightly longer uh, period of time. Um, Although at the end, uh, he kind of dies and is kind of swept up and thrown out with the rubbish, which obviously is not the, uh, not the aim for me. But, uh, but that, that, that was partly inspired by that. Um, but also because um, Kafka himself had such a strange relationship with his own body. Um, I mean, at one point he says that he would only have taken someone to give him a shake for him to lose himself in his skin completely. Um, he often wanted to shrink back through fearing that other people could sort of touch uh, his own body. Um, so that, that sense in which yourself and your body might not be identical, they, they might feel as if they are running in, uh, along parallel tracks, um, is also something that I try and explore a little bit within the book itself. What happens if your body no longer seems to be kind of what you live in? Uh, it, it's more of a kind of strange kind of appendage uh, to, to to your real self. And having developed this skill and experience as a biographer of other people, what was it like to turn that gaze on yourself and how did you go about finding the, finding the right voice and the right tone? Well, I, I was very worried I hadn't. I mean, I was, I was delighted, relieved, um, surprised uh, that, that my editor really liked the book when I, when I showed it to her because with everything I've written, previously it had been based on um a 
uh, an outline uh, plus uh, maybe a sample chapter. And sometimes I'd sold books just on the outline itself. Uh, with this, I wrote the whole thing. I wrote the whole thing. Um, and it's not a very long book. It's only about 60-something thousand words, so about 200 pages. Uh, but, yeah, it, it was it was a, a real voyage into the unknown, trying to work out how to be yourself on the page when yourself is changing all the time, what, what that sounds like, uh, and how to get the right tone in particular. Um, what I suppose I came up with is the fact that if the last few years has taught me anything with my various medical kind of woes and travails, um, it's that you need a sense of proportion, uh, and a sense of proportion and a sense of humour are more or less the same thing. Uh, and what I try to do within the book is to try to put that into uh, a style of writing in which lots of bite-sized chapters uh, are written in a way which I hope will allow people to put themselves in my position while also remembering they are not in my position, uh, which is one of the things that uh, comedy always does. Had you documented your experiences as you were living through them? Well, I had a, um, a diary. I, think I can show it to you. Uh, I decided I would write it down. You know, um, he tames it the fetters in words, as Dunn says. Uh, and so as a special book called The Patient, uh, the title being, of course, what you need as a patient is indeed patience. Um, and in it, um, I just wrote down what was happening day by day. Um, and at the end, uh, I then sifted and uh, sort of stitched together kind of bits of that. Uh, but also, of course, I'm comparing it with um, uh, Cummings's uh, diary entries as well. and talking a little bit about what diaries do and why they might be important as a way of helping you to construct or reconstruct a version of yourself on the page. Given this is an oral medium, I'll explain to the listeners that Robert has just shown us this uh, this very beautiful diary. But I was wondering, do, do you always write in longhand for, for your other projects as well? No. Well, it's a good question. Um, I used to. I used to write in longhand um, because that's what I grew up with doing. Um, and then simply type up what was nearly a finished version. Now, no, I compose on screen. Um but that diary, because very often it was written when I was, you know, either in hospital or, or travelling, um, and I don't use laptops, I only use kind of desktops uh, and tablets. So it seems to be sensible to have something which I could draw diagrams on and, you know, howls of rage and pain kind of get thrown into it and, and so on. Um, but no, th- th- these days I, I, I plan uh, perhaps in unnecessary detail. So the last book I wrote, um, The Turning Point, was probably, it's about 100,000 words, I think, and the plan for it was maybe 25,000 words. So, you know, pretty damn detailed. Um, and it's not then just that the writing is fleshing out the, um, the plan, because often it goes off in a different direction, but it, but it does give me um, the kind of scaffolding or skeleton that I need to feel that at least I know roughly what direction I'm going in or, or how to get there. To change tack slightly, you also work as a historical consultant for film and television programmes. What does that involve? Um, How hands-on is it? Are you on set with the the cast and crew? Yeah, I I have been on set. It it mostly involves biting my tongue, actually. (laughs) Because, I mean, to be frank, the the reason that um, TV companies and film companies employ historical advisors 
is so that they can say they've employed a historical advisor in case anyone complains and says, but wait a minute, they weren't wearing that style of hat. You know, well, a historical advisor passed it. So I, I think I'm probably a bit like a sensitivity reader for uh, for publishers these days that, uh, you know, I, I read the... Um, uh, I read the scripts. I talk to the directors. Um, uh, sometimes the uh, the writers. So the most recent couple of films, Jack Thorne was writing, Harry Bradbeer directing, um, and you know th- there are some things they, they they wanted to kind of check on, and I would find out for them. Other things they just wanted to kind of run by me, that we could sort of kick things around as as ideas to see whether they were historically possible or not. Um, there's a uh, yeah, there, there, there's. Um, another film that hasn't been made yet which I was talking to them about and my job was partly to do some research for them but it was also partly just to be a sounding board so they could come up with you know outrageous um, uh, ideas and say could we do this would, would this would this look stupid say, well I could justify it within the 1850s or 1860s because da, 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 and then they'd feel slightly better about themselves. Jack Thorne is also another excellent previous episode of the podcast for anyone who would like to listen. He's to an him. astonishingly brilliant writer. He really is. He was he was a really great guest as well. I was wondering could you could you give a few examples of, of something you shot down from uh from uh, during your historical consulting work? <laughs> it's uh, jets uh, in uh no, no, it, it, it's mostly... <laughs> in Jane Austen, I hope. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. We just thought it would be you know, a way of you know, enlivening up for the contemporary audience. No, no, it, it, it's, it's mostly language, to be honest. It, it's mostly me saying, well, you want a bit of slang here. Do you want some period slang? Do you want to give it the flavour of the time rather than um, making it sound sort of too contemporary? Uh, because everything else, you're trying to make it look as authentic as possible with, you know, horse droppings and, um, you know, straws on the streets and all that kind of stuff. So do you want the language to be also? And if you do, I'd recommend switching this phrase for this phrase. Um, and very often they do because they want to have that sort of tang of authenticity uh, in, in the script. And, and if often they don't know that a particular phrase hadn't come into the language until, say, you know, 40 years after the thing is set, and they're usually quite grateful to, to hear it. We're coming towards the end of our time. So as a final question from me, I wanted to talk about The Turning Point, which you published in 2021, focuses on one year of Dickens's life, 1851. And you've described it as a huge postscript to becoming Dickens. Why did you want to return to Dickens and his life? And why did you want to approach it in this way in particular? Yeah, an unfinished business, I suppose, because um, I'd written about Dickens's early life and how kind of oddly uncertain it was but hanging over me all the way through that book was the sense that the really big moments wasn't necessarily him handing in his first story when he goes up a dark alley called Johnson's Court and pops it through a letterbox it was a bit later when he entirely changed the kind of novels that he was writing Uh, and the first of those novels is Bleak House and the reason he changes it I think or I argue in the book um, is because the world itself is suddenly kind of shifting gear in 1851. And it's largely because of things like the Great Exhibition happening, which for the first time puts Britain at the very heart of the industrial world and makes people realise that that world is becoming increasingly interconnected. And you can't escape the people who are unlike you because of their nationality or their colour uh, or their gender or anything else. Because in some ways, they are you. You are all part of the same story. And Bleak House is um, the novel in which Dickens writes a story about how interconnected all these worlds and these people are. 
So, so that's why I wanted to come back to him. Um, yeah, unfinished business. Um, and also lots of jokes I hadn't managed to squeeze into the first book. As a final question from me, you, you talked earlier and very lucidly about kind of pushing the boundaries of traditional academic writing and then almost transcending them altogether. When you're teaching at Oxford and with your students, you know, what are, are you, do, do you suggest the same to them that this is in some ways a, a kind of outmoded form that isn't required anymore or, or within the strictures of the university and for the exams and the papers they're doing, do you, do you have a sense that they do have to kind of use that academic lexicon and so forth? This is probably a question for Rachel as much as it is for me. Um, but I, I, I would say that um, I, I encourage my own students to know the rules uh, or at least the um, what's been established uh, up till now and then to play with it. So to um, be aware of certain let us say, critical theories or of um, kind of standard views of an author or um, kind of grand claims that we made for particular genres um, and then to, you know, subvert them, to play with them, to mess them around in ways that make them their own. Well, I think that's all we have time for. Regrettably, I'm not sure I was intelligent enough to play around with any <laughs> Um, but thank you very much Robert for your time it was lovely to catch up with you and all the very best with all of your projects going forward thank you very much indeed thank you for being such lovely interviewers as well that was the Always Take Notes interview with Robert Douglas Fairhurst he's on Twitter at Robert DF Books and his forthcoming book Metamorphosis is published by Jonathan Cape hello it's us again Simon, what was your takeaway from the interview with Robert? Uh, it was a fascinating conversation. Obviously, um, an important person for you, Rachel, because he was your tutor at, at university. So interesting to have that um, that view into the, the Rachel backstory. Um, but I thought it was interesting for crossing the territory between academia and, I suppose, what we would call trade publishing. That's something that we've looked at on the show before with someone like Hermione Lee, um, and I think it's a fascinating line because obviously it's not only a different world and a different kind of commercial form of publishing, but it's also a, a different form actually of writing often in, in many senses. So I think hearing from someone who's who's had a foot in both of those camps is really interesting. What about you? Yes, I navigated that line successfully. Um, as you alluded to and I alluded to at the beginning of the interview, um, it was interesting to speak to Robert about his interest in it, showing where that came from. Um, rather than me having to bleat on at him. And I've actually just nicked a proof of his forthcoming book from The Office. So I'm looking forward to reading that soon. What have you been up to, Simon? Um, I have been doing a lot of planning and admin for my uh, new book, um, which is exciting, but is also a little bit stressful. And uh, doing some uh, magazine work as well around the side and uh, preparing to go for a short visit to the US next month. Um, what about you, Rachel? Sounds like a very quiet time. Um, I've been on holiday for a week, which was very nice. And now I'm looking after the section for a few weeks. So that's keeping me busy. This has been Always Take Notes, hosted by me, Simon Aikham. And me, Rachel Lloyd. Our producer and social media editor is Artemis Irvin. Our score is by Jess Danheiser. And our graphic design is by James Edgar. If you'd like to follow us on social media, we're on Instagram at Always Take Notes, on Twitter at Take Notes Always. If you'd like to support us on our crowdfunding page on Patreon, we're on there under Always Take Notes. And if you'd like to leave a review on iTunes or get in touch with us via our website, please do. Many thanks. Goodbye.